Thank you for coming. It's, uh, I think it's a sign that even eighth week, which tends to have people distracted with exams, that uh, you need a good speaker to get a, to fill a room. And so we're absolutely delighted to have uh, our speaker here, a great friend of the Middle East Centre, um, and one of the, the great experts on the region of the Middle Atlas in Morocco and its Berber population, uh, Michael Peyron. Michael Peyron was born in 1935 to a, a French father and a Scottish mother. He attended Claysmore Public School here in, in Dorset in the UK before serving in the French army that took him to Morocco in 1953. Fell in love with the country and returned after independence to teach English at the Faculty of Letters at Mohammed V University in Rabat through the 1970s and 1980s before moving to Grenoble University in France at the end of the 1980s. He had a keen interest in walking and mountain hiking, which took him into the Atlas Mountains, particularly the, the Middle Atlas, led him to re write which I, which, what is still regarded as the trekking guide bible to the Middle Atlas, the two-volume Great Atlas Traverse, which I think is in both in English and in French. In both, yes. yes. And wrote a doctoral thesis also on the Middle Atlas region and its population. Mm -hmm. He developed uh, an interest in the local population of the Middle East, of the, of the Middle Atlas, the Berber-speaking population, mm -hmm their history, culture, and language, and became a fluent speaker of Middle Atlas Berber, or Tamazight. And whenever I've worked with Michael through the Middle Atlas, and the, re the reaction you get from local people to hear somebody speak such fluent Tamazight is quite something. And the latter part of his career, through establishing the connection, was really has been devoted to writing on Berber, history, and poetry, on which he is one of the leading authorities, publishing both in English and French, and publishing on subjects as diverse as Berber poetry, the resistance period, medieval fortresses of the Middle Atlas, and local marriage practice. He has also contributed to the study of Morocco more generally, and he's one of the lead translators on the English edition of the semi-official History of Morocco, edited by, edited by Mohamed Kabli, which I think is coming out later this year. That's right. Yeah. But we're delighted to have him speak today on his, really, his, his first main academic love, which is on the Moroccan population, uh, the Berber population, of Morocco, and he's speaking today from periphery to Urcam, mm -hmm. and Urcam is, if you don't know what Urcam, he'll explain mm -hmm. in detail what yeah. Urcam is, mm -hmm. how Morocco's Berbers have come in from the cold. Michael. That's right. Okay. Thank you, Michael you Willis. Um, it's very nice of you to have invited me here to speak to this small but distinguished uh, assembly. I'm going to tell you about how the Imazirn, the Morocco's Berbers, came in from the cold. It's not going to be an exhaustive history of the Berbers right back to Caligula and Hannibal and Messinissa and all those people. No, it's um, basically back to the time of Muli Hassan uh, I, that is the, the 1870s, when Morocco was beginning to become uh, pawn, as it were, for all these colonizing powers, especially Britain and France, you see. This, we start off with what boasts, it calls itself a, an accurate map. I like the accurate <laughs> map of not Morocco, but West Barbary, of all places, you see. In the, this is uh, Consul Jackson. He used to res reside in Mogador, which is Suira nowadays, and he wrote this beautiful book on Morocco, its populations, and this is this his quote-unquote accurate map. Well, I can tell you it's, it's blatantly inaccurate in a lot, as, as far as the physical geography is concerned. However, regar as regards place names, it's, it's, it's remarkably precise. Morocco is a hodgepodge of various 
Arabic, Berber-speaking communities, and this more or less shows you the high atlas with the Tashul and anti-atlas with the Tashul-hit-speaking Berbers down the south. Then in the middle, the Zayan, the Moyan atlas, the this is basically uh, Temazir-speaking. And right up in the north, you have the Rif, the Jbela, who speak, uh, well, they, they have become rabbicized. They still have a few uh, Berber words in their vocabulary. And the Rif proper, the Huwara, this is the Znetia-speaking people. That's basically, it's a hotchpotch anyway. So they were on the periphery, you see, the Imazirin, let's say in the 1850s and the 1870s, and the the reigning sultan had to tour, make tours or harka through their areas to make sure that the allegiance was still there and especially that they were paying their taxes, you see. So uh, you had a whole series of these peripatetic sultans. Muli Sliman was the most famous. Muli Hassan first as well. In fact, this is uh, basically the areas covered by Muley Hassan on his lengthy campaigns around uh, Morocco to show the flag and the Sultan's parasol, of course, which was the symbol of imperial dignity, and to collect taxes. And this shows basically his final journey right down to Miski, right down the Tafilalt area, and then back up through, back towards Marrakesh, and he stopped at Telwet. That's when he uh, nominated the, the El Glawi as a Marzen Qaid, and that started a whole train of events, as you probably know. Unfortunately, he died in 1894. He was the last powerful monarch of the old Morocco, the old pre-protectorate Morocco. But he, during that time, he brought into the fold quite a few of these border tribes on the periphery. Apart from the Aitata of southeast Morocco, and apart from some of the high atlas tribes such as the Ait uh, Hariddu especially, and the Ait Murghad. So these were, uh, that's what Imazirn looked like, you see, these dour hillmen with their long rifles. I'll give you a few details on those rifles in a moment. This is w basically what they were like. They, they look... Uh, yeah, hardy hillmen, that's what they are. And they were very good with those long, muzzle-loading, flintlock rifles, which were pretty old. I mean, of two, they were about 200 years old. But the longer the barrel, the more accurate the rifle. And they could knock a Frenchman off a rock at 400 yards. Would you believe it? The only problem with these old rifles was that they would give a puff of smoke and that puff of smoke immediately betrayed the position of the marksman and he would probably get a, a bullet in his head a couple of seconds later. Later on though, this was taken during the resistance period and there they're holding a famous French rifle, a single shot repeater called Le Chasse-Pot. But of course in Berber it doesn't come across as Chasse-Pot, does it? It's Sasbu, okay, S-A-double-S-B-U, Sasbu, because a P becomes a B. My name is Peyron, but nobody calls me Peyron, they call me Biro. So here's one of these famous flintlocks. This is a beautiful, this is a work of art, I mean. These Moroccan gunsmiths in the 1850s, they were churning these out. It was absolutely wonderful. Some of them were Muslims, some of them, some of them were Jews. Jews, funnily enough, were also 
producing very fine model-loading rifles. Here's the Sasbo in its early version with the bayonet, which is fixed at the end, with a repeating rifle, single shot. Here's the fusil gras, which came out in the, uh, in the 1870s. And then the most famous of them all, the, oh no, before that we have, th the Brits have to get in on the act. I'm only talking about French rifles, but don't worry. There, was, there were gun runners coming in through southern Morocco and they were bringing in the Martini Henry. Of course, the Martini Henry, which, was, uh, which did the Zulu War, the first Afghan war and all the other wars of the British Empire. And a few of them found their way to Morocco. But this is the most famous one. This is the French 1884 model re repeating rifle. It's nine shots. So this was a, a force multiplier with a vengeance. Tseya, as the Berbers call it, because it had nine shots. Le fusil le bel. Then it had a smaller brother, much shorter, much shorter barrel and muzzle. The magazine only contained, there was the three shot and there was the five shot version. The thing was, it was a bit lighter and smaller. It was more maneuverable than the, the Lebel, which was about two yards long, but of course very accurate. This was not quite so accurate, and it gave you a very nasty kick in the shoulder. So you had to take off your, your cap or whatever and bolster the end of the, the butt and protect your shoulder. And this was also involved in the fighting, uh, chiefly on the French side. It was the Manufacture de Saint-Étienne uh, machine gun. But a few of them got captured by the Berbers at a famous battle in the Middle Atlas in 1914 outside a place called Khnifra. Five or six of them were captured by the Berbers and they used them practically until the end of the resistance period in 1934. Because apart from the poetry, apart from the folk tales, I'm also very interested in the resistance period seen from the Moroccan resistance side, you see. And I've done a... In fact, I'm doing a book on that right now. This shows you the various stages of the resistance, how they retreated gradually into the southeast portion in 1934 and down uh, near Sidi Ifni. And the, the, the only part which escaped it was Rio, Rio de Oro, or the Spanish Sahara, which is now Notre Sahara Récupéré since 1975, as you know. And that was the only place they could flee to, you see. So in 1934, the last resistance fighters found a safe haven, but nothing else. They were just impounded, and that was it. That was the end of the resistance. Whereas the, the Afghans, when they were fighting the British, and all these on the northwest frontier, they always had a safe haven to retreat to, and they could recuperate and come back, but not with the Spanish Sahara. They were merely impounded. And this was uh, what the Berbers called Al-Marishan Liotti. You know him. <laughs> Marishan Liotti. Uh, the first great proconsul of Morocco, 1912 to 1925, when he was kicked out by his own people because of his semi-failure in the rift. There he is, a formidable character, but he's since been more or less, he's worked his way back into the Moroccan history books. Uh, he's been seen as the saviour of the Alawite dynasty, which is true. He put them back on the throne in a way because they were in a bad way and he helped Moulay Youssef uh, sort of establish his authority as sultan, he was himself a royalist serving a republic. That was the ir irony of the whole situation. These were the uh, Kaids of the Middle Atlas, the, Z the famous Zayan. You may have heard the Zayan of Khinifra. These are the various sons 
of Mulehmu, Mulehmu Azayi, the great, uh, the present king's great grandfather, as you probably know. They went their separate ways. These two fought for the French. This one, he took off into the mountains and held out as long as he could. That's a typical Berber strategy, by the way. You hedge your bets. Part of the family join the conquerors. The other ones hold out for the promise of better days. And th- this runs throughout the poetry, the Berber resistance poetry. They get this idea, we're defeated now, but hopefully one day we'll come back. We'll make a fighting comeback. That's the war memorial of this 1914 defeat of the French outside Genifra, where a whole battalion... Uh, were slaughtered, and six of those machine guns were captured by the Berber resistance fighters and uh, went on fighting until 34. And here is a f- Moroccan version of the Muhauhamu uh, epic, you see, it's written in French by a well-known Moroccan historian, Mohammed bin Lahsen, you see. And this, you can, you can buy this on the bookstores in Morocco. It came out a few years ago, you have to go to second-hand bookshops in the, in the Jotia, probably. In the Jotia, you would find it, I think. Going back a bit further, these are, these are collector's items. They cost about 100 quid or 200 quid now, or 200 euros at least. But they're still around, and they are two of the best books written on the Middle Atlas at the time of the resistance period. Why? Because they're written by a, a, a Berber himself, a Kabyle from Algeria who spoke the language. And so he had a special feeling for the country. Said Gnun. Well, this is a, a map from the Illustration showing the Atlas front, of course, and where the, a lot of the fighting went on near Benimelel, Kasbetadla, and up towards Zawit uh, Hansal, these places. Up there in the middle Atlas, this was a typical arrangement. You see, the, you can see in the background vaguely there's just a little parapet. It's about a yard high. They've put up this stone wall. They've erected those tents and they've, br- and they've unlimbered the 75 millimeter French field gun, which was, which was the standard artillery of the French army in Morocco. And here you have, they are tirailleurs Senegalais, of course, Africans, Sully gun. And here you have the French officer with his moustache, his kippy, and his riding boots, because although it's, a f- it's an infantry outfit or an artillery outfit, officers were allowed to have horses with them, so they rode horses every day. <laughs> it was part of Well, uh, he doesn't have a swagger. Now, this is my personal history of the resistance movement. I came across this illustration in L'Illustration. I remember looking at this, and I said, this place is vaguely familiar to me. I went back there, <laughs> and I suddenly realized that I'd visited this place. It's just above Casper Tadler. I went up there with a Berber friend who said, you must come up here, there's a, a former French outpost up there, still the ruins, and we found this in, you see, this is where the legionaries had dug into the iron hard soil. I mean, that's, that's rock, I don't, they had a hard time, I can tell you. But they'd made quite a lot of fortifications around there. So that was on the Atlas Front in 1922. This is during the resistance in the Middle Atlas. There's a French officer on his horse with his kepi, and he has his his escort of Moroccan Mohazni guards, you see, who are fighting the French side, and he's making a reconnaissance of the area. This is a view eastwards from near Bulmen, 
towards the eastern high atlas, the last part of the middle atlas, Bueblan and Buenos. This is what I call, I, I go here with my American students and I, I, I tell them that this is the wild and woolly east. You see, it's not the wild and woolly west, but because this was the last stronghold of the middle atlas Berbers when they were resisting in the 1925 period, 1926 after the resistance had caved in in the Rif. I have to mention the Rif because in the meantime, in the Rif, you know that there had been this terrific resistance from about 1921 to 1926 under Abdul Krim, and the Spanish army had been badly defeated, especially in this campaign. This is the famous Anuel campaign, when General Sylvester and an army of about 15,000 people were placed hors de combat, after two weeks fighting and General Sylvester himself committed suicide or, or was shot while trying to escape we don't know anyway but once the Rif resistance collapsed in 26 the Middle Atlas followed unfortunately all that remained this is the last stronghold of the Middle Atlas was taken from a period book this is this was 1926 this guy was called Sidir Siderho, he was uh, an Agurem, Agurem or Mrebet, you know, a holy man. He never held a rifle. That's what he told the French when he surrendered. I never fired a shot at you. But he galvanized the resistance to good purpose. And he resisted the French from 1912 to 1926. He was responsible for the two sieges of Fes. You know, Fes was besieged in 1912 and 1913, at the time the Lyote moved in. And he was the mastermind of the whole. But he was a man of peace otherwise. He never fired a shot in anger. But he was a great leader. Also. This was the last resistance area in the High Atlas, the ITF Riman area, the Aithidu, the Aitiahia. They're the, world, the, they're the tribe I did my thesis on. And this was 1932-1933. And that's the pass I'm really interested in. And, and my... Uh, the, the book, which is with a publisher right now, is, deals mainly with the battles of that period, but seen from the Moroccan resistance side. The texts are in Berber, translated into French. And that's what it looked like when you were a French soldier in the Mulouya Plateau. You could look up at Jbel Ayashi, which is over 12,000 feet high, and beyond that, you knew that that was the resistance. This was from about 1922 to 19. 31, about for nearly 10 years, the, the French didn't dare go in there because they, they knew they, about the, all the fighting metal of the uh, resistance fighters in the mountain. This is a famous place on the road between Middelt down to Tefilelt. The, the, the foreign legion hollowed that tunnel out. It's called the Tunnel du Légionnaire or le Défilé du Ziza Fumza, but okay.